So the uh, message this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of First Corinthians, and we're going to look at some verses out of chapter 15 of that book. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you can see over here, they'll probably project it up on the screen. But we're going to look at particularly First uh, Corinthians 15, just the first eight verses, and then we'll jump to uh, verses 12 to 20. It's a very long chapter, so we'll just do, do a little bit of it. Um, so this was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, maybe one of the most famous Christians in, in history. <clears throat> and Paul was one of the, he was really one of the great missionaries of the, the first century. He was one of the ones who spread the faith um, far and wide. And here in this letter, he's writing to the Christian church in the city of Corinth, the Greek city of Corinth, where Christianity had spread. So Christianity was uh, born in Jerusalem. So this is about 800 miles away uh, where it had reached. And so I'm just going to jump right into these verses. And I'm kind of a verse by verse or a couple verses at a time kind of preacher. So I'll just share some verses and then just expound. All right? You guys ready for the word? All right, I'll keep track of time. I know you guys have the ham and the oven and all that stuff. But we're not thinking about food yet. We're going to feast later. But verse 1, he says this, so simple. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Basically, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel just means good news, the good news about Jesus that I preached to you which you received. At one time, the Corinthians were very much just pagans and didn't believe in Jesus, but they heard the gospel message and they believed it and it became alive to them. And he says, by this gospel, you stand and you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So the context here in the book of Corinthians is that some false teachers in the Corinthian church were telling people that there, there is no resurrection of the dead. And it's always been a problem, really, for 2,000 years, that false teachers rise up, so many different people have different ideas, and they even contradict the basic message of the gospel. So Paul, if you not just in the two letters to the Corinthians, but in some of the other letters as well, you really see the tenderness of Paul. I mean, he was an apostle. Uh, he was a great, uh, almost like intimidating figure in some ways. So, uh, some say he was short and wasn't huge in stature, but he had a colossal mind. And, but he was such a father, and he was so tender, and he was so affectionate, uh, in his words, always. So like a father, like a father sometimes has to do, he's, he's setting them straight here in this chapter about this issue of the resurrection. He says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance. Now Paul said a lot of things, but he's saying the kind of the priority thing, the first importance, the foundational thing, you know, regarding this message of the gospel is what I received, that Christ, here it is, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried 
and then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, this is a concise summary, isn't it, of the Christian faith. Paul is saying it's not really up for discussion. This is the message and has always been the message, right? It's the exact message that has been held on uh, to for really 20 centuries by Christians. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised from the dead. There it is. Well, Paul says here, Christ died for our sins. Let me just unpack that a little bit because I want to ask the question, why? You know, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die for our sins? <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> Babies cry, it's what they do. <laughs> we love them. But here's why Jesus died for our sins. Because the Bible teaches that all have sinned, right? We've all, whether a lot, and I've sinned a lot in my lifetime, or a little, but we've all sinned. And no one can cleanse away their own sins and make themselves good enough to sort of qualify for entrance into heaven. This is the basic gospel message. The only way our guilt could be removed would be if God himself became a man, the God-man, and took the punishment for us that we deserve. Or in kids' terms, he takes the spanking for us. That's what the coming of Jesus was really all about. You know, God wasn't surprised by any of the things that happened on the planet, all the sin, all the evil, all the wars, all the violence, all of it. Before he even created the world, before he said, let there be light, he knew that he was going to come and be the savior of the world, that he would give his life as a ransom for our sin. The other day I was in Boston with, with my wife, with our good friends, Nick and Gina, and we were in the North End enjoying some, like you do in the North End, so many good coffee shops, um, enjoying some uh, cappuccinos and, and cannolis. And I shouldn't be talking about food. This is dangerous. Um, but yeah, so but cookies. We were just kind of feasting on fellowship with one another and just eating good food and drinking good coffee. And so when we went to go pay what we owed which I don't know what it was, you know, it was significant because we ate a lot of sugary foods, um, we found out that it had already been paid in full. We just kind of stood there like shocked, like what the, what, what just happened? I don't even know if somebody overheard our conversation, just kind of like wanted to take our bill and do it anonymous. It was kind of a shocking thing. We were almost like arguing with, well, are you sure? We didn't, we didn't pay. And, you know, like Nick looked at me because he's always, he's like my dad, you know, he's like, he always pays usually, you know, so he's looking at me like, well, you snuck the, no, I did. I, I don't even know what happened. It was paid in full. And that's a little like the good news about, about Jesus. When, when we come to God or if we were to try to come to God and pay for our debt, 
right? Again, whether it's a lot of sin or a little sin, if we were to try to come and, okay, I'm here to pay my debt. What do you need me to do? You know, reform or do good works or try to... Really, you can't do that. Nobody can pay for their own debt. But you find out that if we, if we put our faith in, in Jesus, our, our debt is paid in full. It's such good news because people work so hard, don't they? Yeah. I mean, think about all the different religions in the world, all the different, you know, just people strive and work and labor and just do all these things to maybe, hopefully, somehow, perhaps in the next life be, you know, good enough to, you know, your good, weeds, good deeds will outweigh your bad and you'll, you'll be good enough to be, like, accepted into whatever paradise or whatever there is. But the gospel is completely different than that. The gospel of Jesus says you don't have to labor away to try to be good enough. Because okay. you never will be good enough. The gospel says that Jesus has taken care of that bill, that debt for us. That's why it's called good news. That's the, what the word gospel means. So this is the gospel message. Jesus came to die for our sins. He was buried, but then as the scriptures predicted, he was raised from the dead as the ultimate validation of everything Jesus did and taught. Paul was saying in so many words, this is the message from the beginning. He's saying that (laughs) you can't change the message in so many words. He's saying, this is the simple gospel message and you, you, can't, you can't mess with it. Even Paul wasn't, I mean, I'm sure he was a great mind and very creative, but he didn't bend the message. He didn't change it. He didn't like, well, Jesus had some good things, but I improved on it. You know, I like took it to the next level. No, no, no. Like right. apostles and preachers and pastors and priests, we're, we're, we're just simply messengers. Like my job as a pastor, as a preacher, is to basically be faithful to deliver to you the exact message that Jesus gave in the first century. Like we don't have any right to kind of change it up, make make it more cool, make it more hip, make it, you know, I don't know. He says this in, in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says it perfectly. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent, he's speaking of referencing the Garden of Eden here, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you guys put up with it readily enough. So fast forward 2,000 years, and we see all this, this uh, you know, kind of error and false teachings and just all of this in, in sort of full bloom, right? You know, there's thousands of denominations. There's just been so many. There's a lot of weird stuff out there in the name of Jesus, right? People that call themselves Christians, but it's just weird stuff. 
Like they've gone so far away from just the simple message of Jesus and devotion to him. I mean, some do go so far as to literally deny the resurrection of Jesus or deny the deity of Christ or deny that there will be a final judgment one day or deny that the scriptures are inspired. All kinds of different ideas come into play, creep, kind of creep into the church and are packaged sweetly and nicely and people fall into it, kind of buy into it. So Paul's words in the letter to the Corinthians, they're relevant to today. Well, verse five, let's keep going here. He appeared, Paul says, he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. All right, so Paul's letter was written. Cephas is Peter, basically. It's another name for the apostle Peter, uh, one of the inner circle of Jesus who walked with Jesus for three years. So Paul's letter was written in um, 53, 54 AD. The church had existed for about 20 years. And Peter was really famous. He was well known as, he was like kind of maybe the most famous of all of the Christians. He was alive when Paul was writing this letter. Think about that. Any of the Corinthians could have searched Peter out to hear his eyewitness testimony of spending time with Jesus after Jesus died and was raised from the dead. But it's not just Peter, right? Paul says that after Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to all the 12, the 12 disciples. The other gospels give incredible details about the appearances of Christ after he was resurrected and all the different things that happened. Like I love when he just, they were in a locked room, right? They were scared. Uh, Jesus had died. They were all discouraged. And Jesus just walks through the wall and says, hey, or something like that. And kind of scared them. Uh, I think he was having some fun with it. But I love there's many stories in all four of the Gospels about Jesus' interactions with with his disciples. But it wasn't just these appearances, you know. They they weren't just vague. You know what I mean? They they weren't just like, oh, I think I was, uh, you know, it was a flash in the sky and I think it was Jesus. I think it, nope, it was, you know, it's a cloud. I don't know. I think, I think I see him out there in the distance. I hear his voice. It wasn't like that at all. He ate fish with the disciples on a beach. They broke bread with him. Thomas, right, the doubter, the skeptic, like Jesus said, come, touch Touch my hands. Put your hand in the the scars. They grabbed his ankles. They embraced him. They, They sat face to face. Not for a blip, not for five seconds, but for hours. They walked with him along the road. They shared meals with him. They sat around a fire with him. It wasn't just one time either. It was many appearances that Jesus made. So Paul was saying, basically, you know, you should talk to them if you really don't think Christ was raised from the dead. Then verse six, he says this, then he, Jesus, appeared to more than 
500 at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died, some have fallen asleep. 500, there's probably uh, a little over 100 people in this room right now, maybe 150 at, at best. Think about 500 people. I mean, we, we might wonder about the validity of one or two people saying, yeah, I know Jesus died, but I, I saw him. You know, we, we talked with him on the road and, you know, maybe one or two or three people are kind of telling their story about seeing the risen Christ. But 500, that's a lot of people. He's saying, go talk with them because they're still alive. Most of them are still alive. Compare their stories. Try to find the inconsistencies. You won't be able to because it happened. Christ was buried and Christ was raised. Then he says, verse seven, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Now this is not James, it's likely not James of the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, because uh, James was actually beheaded really early on, so they couldn't go and talk to James. But this was probably the half-brother of Jesus. If anyone would know if Jesus was really raised from the dead, <laughs> it would be a sibling. Yes, that's right. Right? So the Corinthians could go talk, go talk with James. Go talk with James. And then it says Jesus also appeared to all the apostles. And here Paul probably isn't referring to uh, the 12, because he already mentioned the 12, right? Um, but to leaders sent out on a mission. That's what apostle means, one sent on a mission. And so Paul was probably meaning here that all of those missionaries that have been spread all around the world, they've all had eyewitness encounters with the risen Christ. Go talk with them. They'll all tell you the same thing. He's alive. We saw him. Now, verse eight, he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul adds himself to this massive list of people the risen Christ appeared to. Paul himself encountered the risen Christ in his own time. It was much later, and this is kind of what he's referring to. This Greek word means kind of miscarriage, and it was just a, you know, I think the, the, the idea of one untimely born was uh, Paul didn't have sort of a natural conversion. Like most people, like the disciples, the apostles were, you know, they kind of heard the gospel. They walked with Jesus. They didn't really get it. They slowly began to connect the dots. It, it, it became real to them. They were friends with Jesus. You know, it was like that's how kind of most people are, you know, brought to faith. It's, it takes some time, right? But Paul was different. He was just like literally ejected out of darkness. I mean, he was like just... On, just filled with rage, persecuting the church, on the road to Damascus, you know, with all his like entourage, going to like drag people out of their homes and drag them into prison and have them killed. And he is just, you know the story, probably some of you, right? The, the great story of Saul to Paul, the great apostle Paul. He was just flattened by the power of God. He was squashed. Like Jesus just came along and booted him right off of his horse. 
He goes flying. He sees a light from heaven that blinds him for three days. He's walking around and, and like, you know, he can't even see. He's just completely transformed by the power of God. But strangely, he kind of wasn't proud of that, that that happened. He was, in so many words, you kind of get the idea that he was, he felt he was so stubborn that it took that kind of kick in the butt to wake him up. So here's what I want to say here. It's hard to believe that Jesus rose from the grave, right? But it's a lot harder. Listen, it's a lot harder to believe that all the disciples and all the apostles, the sibling of Jesus, plus 500 eyewitnesses and Paul himself are all completely delusional. And now this is, of course, you know, 20 years after Jesus died. I mean, we're, we have 2,000 years of this. I mean, they say that 2 million people were martyred in the first few centuries. I mean, for us, it takes even more faith because now we're saying all of the martyrs throughout all the ages, they were all delusional and crazy because they preached the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 12, skipping just a few verses there. He says this, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, he's just, he's kind of shocked here, isn't he? Like, how can you say, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In essence, he's saying if the apostles who were entrusted with the message of the gospel delivered this message that Jesus was raised from the dead, how, how could you throw out the resurrection? That's kind of like the main thing. It would be like one of us saying, I could come up with so many different examples that man never did walk on the moon. Or the words, we the people, are actually not part of the U.S. Constitution. Or any number of other examples you could perhaps think about. We just, we can't just make stuff up. You know, we can't just change, just change the story. Well, how, what do you mean? Like man didn't walk, yeah, that's what I, I'm, that's my thing. Yeah, I just don't think that man walked on the moon. No, I just, that's, that's what I believe. It, it didn't happen. Well, it clearly happened. Like there's so much evidence. Well, no, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. And I'm not, that's, I, I'm not doing that. I'm starting a new thing. It's my new narrative. It's the, we've never been to the moon belief. So Paul, Paul just begins like hammering them here with multiple disturbing realities if Christ was in fact not resurrected, as they were saying. Okay. He's, by the way, these are Greeks. They're into philosophy. They're into reasoning. So Paul's like just speaking their language. All right, you want to do the reasoning thing? Let's, let's go there. And he just like, he can do it. Here's his first reason, verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. Whoa. Our preaching is in vain. I mean, Paul probably preached thousands of messages up to this point. And he's saying to the Corinthians, like, it's all, it's all stupid. It's all worthless. 
and all of your prayers and all of your Bible readings and church activity and all the things that you've done in Jesus, you know, for Jesus, it's all worthless if Christ really wasn't raised from the dead. I mean, isn't Jesus the object of our faith, right? I mean, he, he's kind of the whole point of it. Like he's the one we pray to. He's the one that we trust as savior. So if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead and is actually in a grave, a corpse, rotting, then our faith is good for nothing. Verse 15. Second reason, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that God raised Jesus from the dead, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not actually raised. So he takes this a little further, doesn't he? If Christ wasn't raised, then we're guilty of grossly misrepresenting God. We're liars. We're false teachers. Blasphemers. Deceivers. We're persuading people to actually, that's what I'm doing right now, to believe something that isn't actually true about God. Paul implies here that if Christ wasn't raised, that they probably shouldn't think very highly about Paul, right? But that would kind of mess with them because they knew Paul. Paul wasn't just like a pop in once in a while kind of, you know, evangelist or something like that. Paul spent time with the Corinthian church. He was like their dad. You know, he just like spent, poured into them, loved them, was with them. They watched the way he lived. So this, this point here would kind of mess them up a little bit. Now, third reasoning, verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and here it is, is getting a little bit more personal. You are still in your sins. Whoa, okay, I didn't really, I feel like the Corinthians weren't really processing all this. Oh, yeah, okay, that's, all right. Paul was making the point that if Christ is rotting away in a grave somewhere, then you don't really have a savior. And that means you're still in your sins. You're still guilty before God. You're not forgiven. You're not ready to stand before God on the day of judgment. You're still hopeless. You're dead in sin. Because that's really what our condition is if there is no Savior. Verse 18. Now he's getting even more personal. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. And by perish, it doesn't just mean died. He means like are eternally lost, separated from God forever. You know, your beloved aunt who was a, a Christian, your mom who was a woman of faith but died a couple years ago, your Christian brother who, um, you know, died last winter. Well, all those people you knew and loved who passed away, they're all separated from God. They're perished. I mean, Paul's tearing this up. You don't, think, you don't think Jesus is risen? Well, okay, that means all the people that you know who had faith in Jesus, um, they're, they're gone. They're perished. 
They're not in paradise with Jesus. They're not present with the Lord. They're not alive awaiting the new city that's talked about in Revelation 21 and 22. They're not with the great symphony, the the choir of angels and all that. They're just dead. Six feet under the ground, rotting, decaying. Can you imagine the Corinthians reading this? Oh, okay, that's not, wait, maybe, maybe the resurrection did happen. Maybe we should rethink this. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, people should just feel sorry for us because we're fools. Those of us who pray to Christ like all the time are actually, if Christ wasn't raised, I mean, we're, we're like talking to an imaginary friend that we made up, right? I mean, Christians this morning, like they're praying all over the, the all over, like, right? Praying to the risen Christ and singing these songs about the resurrection. It's, it's actually like really pathetic if Christ wasn't actually raised. I mean, what are we going to say? Well, it's nice that they have something to believe in. Okay, that's, that's just weird. Well, it gives them hope, you know, even though it's not true. It just, it makes them feel good. That's just still like really weird. If Christ wasn't raised, Christians are pathetic. I don't know why this came to mind, but, you know, we would be like people devoting our lives to Tinkerbell. Who, for those that need to know, isn't real. <laughs> but if someone, I use this as an example because I did talk with Tinkerbell on a regular basis when I was about eight years old for a short period of time because I had a little crush, I think, on Tinkerbell. But that's another story. But I, I was deluded for a short period of time. Uh, okay, so, but if you saw me at eight years old talking with Tinkerbell, you'd be like, that's sweet, I think. It's a little weird. Okay, he's a little out of touch with reality. I hope he grows out of this. <laughs> but that's what Paul is saying here. If Christ wasn't raised... Like, who are we talking to? We've made up an imaginary friend. I mean, I think about, too, what Paul himself went through for his faith. He was beaten with rods. I mean, he was constantly hunted in danger. People hated him. He was flogged five times, right? That's the 39 lashings that just basically bring you inches from death shred the skin right off your body. Five times he did that. Why? Not because like Paul was so nice and Paul was like helping the poor. No, it was because he was preaching the resurrection of Jesus. So all of that would have been for nothing in vain. The point here is that the resurrection of Jesus, it, it matters. This, this is actually huge. It has huge, massive implications for every single human being. I mean, all unbiased historians agree that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, lived 2,000 years ago. I mean, there, was enough, there, were, there were enough historians that uh, were present 2,000 years ago to, yeah, attest to the fact that there was, yes, there was a man named Jesus who lived and had many followers, and some even say he was a healer and did miracles and you know, as a teacher. 
even in our kind of post-Christian New England, Europe, uh, educated people acknowledge that Jesus was an extraordinary human being. Most people just believe that. You don't hear too many people. I mean, people have all kinds of issues with the church, right? Oh, Christians and the church and crazy people, you know, like, yeah, I'm kind of with them on some, some of that stuff, right? You know, they, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff out there and a lot of embarrassing things. But very few people will strike against Jesus, right? They just kind of respect him. Yeah. But the real issue is the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just, you know, he's a good guy, he's a good teacher, he was like a revolutionary. You know, we make Jesus so cool. Like, we make him like, oh, he's like, I don't know, a hippie or something, or just like he's gonna, he, we kind of make Jesus what we want him to be, right? That, that's kind of our problem. Like, we, we kind of fashion him into our image. If we don't really want to believe who he is, really, we just kind of like, whatever we're into, our values, that's what Jesus is about. Like, Jesus is all about basically the stuff that I'm into. <laughs> but C.S. Lewis uh, puts this best. There is no middle ground. And he, he says this in his book, Mere Christianity. I am trying here, this is just quote right from C.S. Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would have either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Maybe that's a British humor or something or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let not... Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's good, right? There's no middle ground. Now this last verse, verse 20, says, but, always a big but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ is not in a grave somewhere outside of Jerusalem. His bones have not decayed. His body is not decomposed. Jesus is alive and well. He ascended back to glory and is at the right hand of the Father. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He is the soon coming King. He will again come and judge the earth. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. He is the one who created all things in the beginning, and he is the one who holds all things together now. Hebrews says he's a consuming fire. 
He is the light that illuminates the new city described in Revelation. He is the judge seated on the throne from whom earth and sea fly away, Revelation 20. He dwells in unapproachable light. He's the head of the church. I mean, that's what this is all about. He dwells in our midst. He dwells in the heart of every true follower of Christ. He's the hope of our glory. I mean, who compares with Jesus? No one. I mean, what great humans have died and were raised from the dead and ascended back into the glory of heaven? Moses? No. What about Muhammad or Gandhi? Mother Teresa, MLK. I mean, there's a lot of incredible human beings throughout history. Incredible. But no one compares with the person of Jesus Christ. He is supreme. The Bible says every knee will bow before him one day and confess that he is Lord, that he is the living, true God, the embodiment of deity. The day will come, listen, when all of the greatest religious leaders and political leaders and artists and inventors and kings and queens and the wealthiest and most powerful people who have ever lived will stand before the glory of Jesus in eternity. And they will appear as nothing, tiny little specks before a great mountain. He's not only alive, but he has no beginning and no end. I mean, he was there in the beginning and was there before time began. He always was and always will be. He is the all-powerful, the all-knowing, everywhere present, sovereign ruler of the universe. Like the book of Revelation says, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is Jesus. He's not just a good guy. Here's the really good part of the good news. Everyone is welcome to join Jesus in this kingdom that he is building for eternity. I was thinking of how uh, we've all, I think, hopefully, we've all received an invitation to a party at some point in our life. Maybe it was like a Valentine's Day party, you know, when you were in second grade or a birthday party or a wedding or a baby shower or something, right? So we've all received invitations But how many know it's not enough just to receive the invitation, right? The host isn't happy. Oh, I sent out out 100 invitations. No, the host is eagerly anticipating the response that people will have to the invitation, right? And sometimes like on Evite, you can even send a message to the host. Yeah, can't wait. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to go. Can't wait to see you guys. We're there. Count us in. 
the invitations from God have gone out into all the world, haven't they? Everyone is invited to the table. To the it doesn't matter what we've done. Doesn't matter. Oh, we have you know done the worst things. I'm the worst human being, and 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 you know in this generation, it doesn't matter what we've done, whether good or bad. The invitation comes, but our tiny part, I guess, is to respond and say, "Yeah." Lord, I'll be there. I want to be part of this eternal kingdom. I don't want to miss it. I believe in you. I want to follow you. So that's the question I put back on all of us is what is our response to the invitation from God? This has come. Be a part of this forever. I want you. I want you. I created you to know you. You were created. You were designed by God. Fearfully and wonderfully made, by the way. Designed by God to know him and enjoy him forever. That's good news, right? That's, that's, that's good. Even though this world is a, it's a mess, Right? but we can know him now, we can enjoy him now, but we have that hope that one day we will see his face, Revelation 22. We will see his face, we will become like him, and we will be with him. So we will ever continually be with the living God. I remember one of my friends said, the first time he heard the gospel, he like ran you know, some churches have altar calls. This was like a youth camp or something like that. He was like 11. And the, the altar call was there. Okay, you know, how many want to, you know, know Jesus and spend eternity with him? He like ran to the, like, yeah, wow. Is this a trick question or something? And he just ran down and like, of course I want to be with Jesus and spend eternity with him. I love that simplicity. But wow, can we complicate things? My prayer this morning is that, and we can have the musicians come back wherever they are, and we're going to do one final song, but I'm just going to pray for us. Father, I, I just pray that we would not, yeah, that we would just kind of hear your words this morning and not, not me. I know it's like my my voice, but I pray that I'm just an instrument. I'm just, um, you know, I'm a messenger. And so I, I pray that, that every heart in this place would hear you calling them to just to come, to come closer, to come home, to, to come into this kingdom, to let go of other ways of thinking and just to step into this kingdom way of thinking. Lord, draw every one of us. And Lord, we, we sing this last song as just a declaration of our faith and of our love. And we pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's stand together and let's sing one last song.
and go out with a bang. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>